Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin this time together, I just want to take a moment, let you know what's coming up in our community in the next little bit. Firstly, on March 24th, College and Career is hosting their Story of Our Lives series, and the speaker this time will be Ambrose Professor Jennifer Singh. This last year, we've been challenged by God to learn about the beauty and also past sufferings of the First Nations and Indigenous people of Canada. So as well as working at Ambrose, Jennifer's also a volunteer pastor at a church on the Sutina Nation Reserve. So you can join as Jennifer speaks about her journey of faith and her friendship with those in her church. And secondly, on March 31st, the Community Hub is hosting a seminar on adolescent mental health in a world of COVID, climate crisis, and cultural changes. So our speaker, Dr. Rob Penner, has designed this seminar for parents of adolescents that are wrestling with questions of meaning, purpose, and identity as they navigate the current challenges of today's world. And so the goal is to provide insight and tools for parents who are seeking to better support and strengthen their adolescents' overall mental health and well-being. So the best way you can know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Welcome, wherever you are or whoever you're gathered with. Uh, We are here in kind of an unusual circumstance where Sam is unwell, and so here I am, and I'm going to preach his sermon. And I I must say, if you have any problem with it at all, uh, you can email sam at southviewchurch.com, because this is his. Anyway, as we preach through God's Word today, we're also going to be focusing on and looking towards the high point of our service in the meal of communion, which we'll come to after going to God's Word together. So in every good story, there is history and there is risk. And one of my favorite stories is the movie Hidden Figures. And it's the true story of a group of African-American female mathematicians that worked at NASA whose calculations helped fuel some of America's greatest achievements in space. So these women were segregated from their white counterparts and were the object of ruthless discrimination. Despite their important work calculating flight paths for space missions, They ultimately worked their way up to highly influential positions in science and physics, mathematics, and technology. And as each one speaks up, each person, 
They take action, but they do so at a great personal risk. And the stories of Holy Week, also called Passion Week, are brimming with both history and risk as well. The history provides the foundation and often explains what's going on and why. And if we get our history wrong, we will misunderstand what the gospel writers are trying to tell us. And the risk brings the anticipation or the danger and the potential for great loss or great reward. We should always be willing to take a risk when we open our Bibles. For any time we study God's Word, it should open up new readings and new ideas. We shouldn't read the text or understand the passion narrative the same way that we did when we were children. New information about the history may cause us to rethink previously held views. New insights into the gospel text may even cause us to rethink how we act in the world today. And yet, there's also deep stability in these stories. Nothing in the doing of history or the study, or study of literature can ever take away from the theological claims of the church. And so for us, we're in the church season of Lent, and it's a season of the liturgical year where for 40 days, Christians talk about Jesus' journey to the cross. The stories told are not about the happy glory days in Galilee where Jesus is feeding 5,000 or he's raising the dead. These stories are about the unavoidable move to suffering and death. Amy Jill Levine once said that during Lent, we have the opportunity to think about our life alongside the life of Jesus, inviting inward transformation and then outward action. And we're reminded in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to accomplish his messianic role. He's there in order to die on a cross. And the passion narrative shows him doing that. And so the question that I want us to consider today is, what inward transformation and outward action is Jesus inviting us to? And these are the reflections that prompt us throughout Lent. We're in the third week of Lent, and we're looking at the final 24 hours of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross in the Gospel of John. And before we get into our passage in John 18 today, let me try to set up the context for Jesus' passion within the overall narrative of the Gospel of John. So in John's Gospel, the pursuit to kill Jesus is particularly prominent and more violent than we see in any of the other Gospels. Early on in Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders, early on in Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders, turns to their seeking the more, all the more to kill him in John 5, 18. And so the Greek word for seek is zeteo, which means to search for or seek after. It has a sense of seeking, but, but with a specific aim. 
In fact, even when it's said simply that the Jews and others seek Jesus, the implication is almost always to seek to kill him. And so this death pursuit ultimately wins out when Jesus is arrested by a Roman cohort and then he's tried and crucified as a criminal. And this conflict and successful death plan are part of a greater cosmic conflict that actually begins in the prologue. The Logos, or the Word, as the light of the new creation, shines in darkness. And the darkness could not overcome or overtake the light. That's in John 1.5. And so this assures readers from the start that the darkness will not succeed in its opposition to destroy Jesus and his mission. This theme of cosmic conflict between the forces of light and darkness, that is between the Logos and Satan, anticipates the opposition to Jesus as the light of the world in the ensuing story. In John 1, 10, and 11, it becomes clear that the cosmic battle between light and darkness will play out on the stage of human history in Jesus' ministry. He will be rejected by the cosmos in John 1, 10, and then by his own in John 1, 11, with his own taking the role of Jewish leaders in the narrative. And so today we're picking up the narrative in John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, and just as last week we began Jesus' final 24 hours with the Passover meal and Jesus' farewell discord, well, today we're going to dis- discord. Today we are going to discover how Jesus was arrested. And as a reminder, this is the word of God. John chapter 18, 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
And even in these unusual circumstances, would you speak? Would we hear you? And would your spirit be working through the pages of the text? We ask this in your name. Amen. And so in John 2, 4, the hour that he announced in that verse has arrived. In verse 1, we read, when Jesus had spoken these words. So verse 1 marks a transition from prayer to narrative. Just as in chapter 17, when, Je when he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, that marked a transition from discourse to prayer. His disciples, about whom he has said much in the prayer, but who have not been heard from since chapter 16, they are back in the picture. They are, apparently, still in the room where they had dined and where he had washed their feet. Jesus now went out, as Judas had done much earlier in chapter 13, and not alone like Judas, but rather with his disciples, and in doing so, putting into action at last his almost forgotten words from chapter 14, three chapters earlier. Rise, let's go from here. I always think that this is why preachers have such long conclusions. It really comes from Jesus. He says to his disciples, all right, let's wrap up. And then he goes on for another three chapters. So their destination is out of the city. It's across the valley of the Kidron to a garden into which he and his disciples entered. So the singular verbs went out and entered place Jesus at the center of the action. However, the phrases, but with his disciples and he and his disciples make it clear from the outset that this story is about them as well. And even though Jesus is the sole lead in the drama ahead and is not to be crowded out by other actors. It means a great deal to our evangelists that Jesus had the company of his disciples for as long as possible. In that, Jesus is not a lone wolf. He wants his community with him as much as is humanly and divinely possible. It's a reminder right then and there that community is necessary in this life. If Jesus and his disciples feasted in upper city Jerusalem, as we see here on the map, they may have taken a staircase that descends from the Temple Mount to the Kidron Valley. And this is just to the east in chapter 18, verse 1. The physical location of the phrase, the Brook Kidron, or the Kidron Valley, serves to emphasize the geographical and historical setting of this first of the several passion events. And this is a picture of what it looks like today. Jesus's passion wants to be seen and heard as history, not just as a story. One of the most interesting facts that we learn from the presentation in this gospel is that these events very likely happened in late winter. We're told at chapter 18, verse 18, that the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. But even more telling is actually that they crossed the brook Kidron. 
The Kidron flowed only in the rainy winter season, and so it, would, it wouldn't have been hard to cross at Passover in April. Their destination is a garden, and we're told in verse 2 that Jesus often met there with his disciples. Only the fourth gospel tells us that there was a garden that the disciples entered with Jesus, and it is only in this fourth gospel that we are told how Judas knew where to find Jesus and his disciples. It was a place that they frequently met together. And this suggests a frequency of Jesus and the disciples in Jerusalem, not hinted at in the rest of the Synoptic Gospels. Judas's prior knowledge sets the stage for an account of his action in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so we get the impression that Judas is the instigator of this attempt to capture Jesus. Although, as R.E. Brown says, the text may mean only that he was a guide to the garden. So who came with him? Two groups of people are mentioned, and that is the temple police of the priest and the Pharisees, and then also a band of soldiers. Band of soldiers in the Greek, which again, this was the only part I was worried about as I recorded this message I didn't write. Band of soldiers in the Greek is, I'm going to say spira, and it indicates that the detachment of soldiers consisted of a cohort of Roman soldiers. So the term spira normally means a cohort, the tenth part of a Roman legion, or 600 men. This term is not a synonym for the police. It's a technical military term for a specific number of Roman troops. And many scholars have suggested that Pilate, being edgy and fearing an insurrection during the feast, may have sent a large contingent of troops. And this is plausible. If these events happened shortly after Jesus' triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, both of those situations would have been seen as political actions. So this shouldn't come as a surprise, as the Romans could use large numbers of soldiers even in dealing with a single person, like the 470 soldiers that protect Paul in Acts 23, verse 23 particularly if they fe feared a riot. So Roman troops were stationed in Caesarea, but during festivals, they gathered northwest of the temple by the fortress of Antonia, and you can see this here on the map. This enabled the Romans to keep a close watch on the crowds during Jewish festivals and to quell any mob violence at the very outset. As well, Judas also brought with him some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. The officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees represented the temple police. These are the primary arresting officers. This unit was commanded by the captain of the temple guard, who was charged with watching the temple at night. These Jewish officers have been in the picture before. At the Festival of Booths in chapter 7, when the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him, these are the same officers. They returned to the chief priests and Pharisees empty-handed. 
So on the face of it, the two groups, one priestly and linked to the temple, and the other made up of laity and linked to the synagogue, do not appear to be natural allies, but the gospel has quite consistently shown them acting in unison, and that's what we have here. So together they have a common interest in bringing Jesus to, to justice. From here on, however, the Pharisees actually disappear from the story as the trial and execution is left to the chief priests and their officers, in addition, of course, to the Roman soldiers. The centrality of Judas in this narrative is highlighted as the one who is leading them to Jesus with lanterns and torches and weapons. Obviously, the lanterns and torches implying that it is still night and the weapons as if expecting armed resistance. That's the gear for the whole party, not Jud Judas alone, and probably not Judas at all. Others will do the heavy lifting. Judas is only a guide, showing them where Jesus can be found, yet for the moment of his role in the arrest, here in the text, he's placed front and center. Both Roman soldiers and the temple police would carry lanterns on their night watch, and especially if they expected Jesus to flee into the dark corners of the olive grove, they would hardly depend solely on the light of the Passover's full moon. But what I find interesting is that only John's gospel mentions this historically likely touch. And he may be suggesting a symbolic, ironic significance from it. Scholar Craig Keener puts it this way. The agents of darkness prove completely unaware that they are approaching the light of the world. And reading through the Gospel of John, we quickly see that it's marked by the use of dualities, such as light and darkness, or above and below, or flesh and the spirit. This sort of dualistic worldview reflects a belief in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. It's in John's Gospel that the metaphor of light and darkness reaches its full fruition in the New Testament. The fourth gospel clearly understands the story of Christ as the playing out of a cosmic conflict between good and evil, and it's most potently expressed as a conflict between light and darkness. Jesus, aware of what is to come, he charts his own destiny in keeping with God's commands. We see earlier in John 13, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands— Jesus stooped to wash the feet of his disciples, foreshadowing his upcoming death as an act of self-giving love and of purification. So here in our text today, with the knowledge of what is to come, Jesus prods the band of soldiers. Whom do you seek? Jesus doesn't shrink from what is coming. He steps forward to meet his captors who will hand him over to death. As he had said earlier in John 10:18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So even if, the, even if in the end the Romans do put Jesus on a cross, they do so only because Jesus allows it 
or even wills it. The one who has and is life gives himself over to death. Jesus identifies himself to those who have come to seek him. Twice he asks them, whom do you seek? And twice they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And twice Jesus identifies himself to them. And the first time he responds, he says simply, I am he, ego I me. The second time he states, I told you that I am he. And I'm not going to read that Greek phrase that's written in the manuscript. So while ego eimi is simply an ordinary means of self-identification, it's also the mode of God's self-identification in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, especially in those parts of Isaiah where God asserts his uniqueness. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Do you remember in John 8 when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. It speaks of God's self-existence. And with these reverberations, with these words reverberating of divine self-revelation, Jesus acknowledges himself to the troops who have come for him. And when he does, they fall to the ground. Can you imagine being there and seeing this scene? John depicts Jesus. He's confronting the formidable powers of Rome and Israel. He has no lantern or torch or weapon. He only has a word. And he shows himself in that word to be more powerful than all of them arrayed together against him. His word knocks a Roman cohort, along with the accompanying servants of the Jewish authorities, he knocks them off their feet. Rome is confronting not merely a potential Jewish troublemaker, but rather the embodied word of God. The one who speaks as God speaks, who has the unique powers to give life and to rule. Whoa. That's what it says here. But then there's a bit of comedy here, as if nothing has happened. They're laying on the ground. As if nothing has happened, Jesus asks the Roman soldiers and Jewish officers the same question. I like to picture he's here, they fall, and then he just asks them the same question by just shifting his gaze down. He looks down and says, So whom do you seek? Jesus is depicted in every scene in John's gospel as in control of each situation, especially in these most important situations. When Jesus' first question here in the Passion story, it almost exactly repeats Jesus' first question, really his first words at all in the whole gospel. His question to the two disciples of John the Baptist who were following Jesus, what are you seeking? But then once again, his first passion question here exactly echoes the risen Jesus' first question to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Whom are you seeking? 
With that echo, one can be moved to conclude John believes this particular question is the single most important question in the world. Frederick Bruner puts it this way, who it is or what it is we are looking for in life tells us more about ourselves than almost any other question that we could be asked. But here in this scene, the question is one to which Jesus already knows the answer. They are seeking him. And more specifically, they're seeking to arrest him and take his life. But Jesus doesn't destroy his captors. Instead, he gives himself to them. He reminds the guards that they've come to arrest him, not his disciples. And by doing this, he provides a vivid illustration of his mission to offer himself on their behalf. John 10 verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So though Jesus' disciples may betray or deny or abandon him, he remains faithful to them. While Jesus may have set events in motion leading to the, his arrest and death, Peter, on the other hand, has other plans. He, he draws his sword, he attacks the high priest, servant, or slave, uh, and he's, he cuts off his right ear. And John's account names the man as Malchus. So Malchus doesn't reappear in the gospel, but what we do know for named characters, uh, except for well-known Jewish or Roman authorities like Caiaphas or Pilate, a named character according to biblical scholar Mary Ann Thompson, typically are or become disciples of Jesus. And so again, there's a, there's a comic touch. Jesus has floored the whole company with, one, with a word. And poor Peter thinks his sword is necessary to save the day. And so commanding Peter to put his sword away, Jesus contrasts his disciples' sword with his father's cup that Jesus must drink. And both sword and cup represent death. But the sword brings about death to others. Whereas the cup entails Jesus' death, which brings life to others. According to Mark, Jesus first prayed that the hour might pass from him, but then that the father would remove this cup from him. Yet he also prayed that God's will would be done. Here in John, Jesus refuses to pray, save me from this hour, the hour that marks the climax of his mission, and instead declares that he will drink the cup that the Father has given him. So once Jesus' intention has been made clear, the band of soldiers and their captain of the Roman cohort bind him and take him him first to Anas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And so from this moment on, Jesus will begin to drink the cup. Jesus is about to give up his life. Jesus not only takes up his own cross, Mark 8:34 states, he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And Matthew 10:38 repeats this point. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
the passion narrative asks much of us. And it also, through Jesus' example, gives us the knowledge that we can do what we are asked and that the assurance, we have the assurance that we will succeed. But before we can be built up, a season like Lent will strip us down. And in that rawness, that openness, we can begin to heal. Before we get to the resurrection, there will be suffering and crucifixion and death. Because entering the passion means risk-taking. It means facing our fears or facing our failures, facing our faults and addressing them. Whom have we betrayed or denied or condemned? Entering the passion means taking, asking questions rather than settling for what we've always been taught. Asking questions rather than settling for what we've always been taught. And entering the passion should give us comfort as well. The comfort of knowing that death is not the end of the story. And the comfort of knowing that the good news continues not just when people proclaim it, but when they enact it. The fourth gospel states its purpose clearly in John 20, 30, and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The author writes to call forth faith in Jesus. And while this suggests an evangelistic purpose, the gospel seems intended to bring a confidence for believers as well. The reading, that you may believe, is debated among scholars, as some early manuscripts could be translated that you may continue to believe. And so these two purposes, to provoke belief and perseverance, are not mutually exclusive, and both are probably aspects of the author's purpose. The bottom line is that John's gospel is a call to decision. Readers are not only introduced to the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but they are called to respond in faith to him. So entering the passion means taking seriously, really seriously, what it means to participate in communion with Christ and to participate in communion meals with others. So let us come to this table to find strength and hope and life and then respond to him in faith as we receive from Christ together. So as we come to this reformed Passover meal, and we just learned about it last week, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And Christ's blood was poured out for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you feed us in this meal by the bread and the cup? 
Nourish us in Jesus, for we come in faith. Amen. I invite you to take the bread that you have with you, and I remind and invite you, the body of Christ was broken for you. Receive from him. And then take the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you, received from him. Let's pray. God, as we move through this week, give us the gifts of concentration and of focus, of empathy, as we seek to determine where your astonishing story, which is on one hand so familiar and yet so incredible, so extraordinary, we seek to determine where it fits with our own narratives. We believe wholeheartedly that your passion and death have significance beyond our comprehension. Allow us to be touched and awestruck by the holy events of your passion and to claim them once again for our own lives. Amen. We hope you can join us next week as we continue in this series, the final 24, looking at the final 24 hours of Jesus' passion. And so now as you head into whatever this week holds for you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>